0: The following audio content is a talk given at The Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Thanks for coming out, everyone. My name is Ryan Church, one of the guys... On staff here, I recognize we 're getting into midterms, so I appreciate you guys making the space to come out and be a part of some fellowships, some tacos, and all that the inn offers. Well, perhaps many of you are familiar with the uh, the tribe in, in Kenya known as the Maasai people, beautiful people uh, there in Africa. They have this incredible ritual, this rite of passage for boys ages fourteen to 16, to go on this lion hunt, and the idea with this lion hunt is essentially that they go out as boys, they, they go out, they, they, they kill their lion, they slay the lion, and they come back as men. It's this incredible ritual, this, this rite of passage, and when I think about, man, what do we have in our culture that's the same thing? I mean, what what is really the rite of passage for a young man? And the closest thing that I was able to come up with is lottery tickets, okay? I mean, think about this. When I was 18, the biggest privilege I had wasn't to go out and kill a lion. It was to walk into the AM, PM, a boy, buy my ticket, and come out a man, okay? And and it, it worked for me. Um, I've got, I, I mean, I've got bad eyes. The lion hunt wasn't going to work for me. So I'm, I'm in good shape uh, in, in terms of that. Um, and so the, the, lottery, the lottery was kind of kind of my style because I kind of like the fantasy of being rich. Uh, I love the idea that I could look like Will Ferrell and wear this, this money suit that he wore at the MTV Movie Awards or our good friend uh, from 30 Rock Uh, the girly Show's very own Tracy Jordan wearing his money suit. So honestly, not long after my 18th birthday, I was working at a radio station, and right by this station that I worked at was a little mini-mark called Jackpot. Okay, so it became impossible for me to go to work at the radio station, park my car, and walk by uh, this radio station without buying a lottery ticket. I mean, it just seemed irresponsible to walk by a place called Jackpot and not buy a lottery ticket when I can? Come on, you gotta do that. So one night... Um, it- I've, I've done this, and of course, one of my, one of my jobs as, the, as an announcer at the radio station was to actually read the lotto numbers. So it was something, you know, where I'm like, Ryan, the Love Doctor Church, rolling with you here on a Saturday night, 1450 on your dial, number one in your heart. Bust out those tickets, everyone. Here are the winning numbers in tonight's Washington State Lottery draw, 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, and 42. Well, one night, as I'm, yeah, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> We'll take your calls a little bit later, giving you advice on your relationship problems. Anyway, <laughs> there's one night as I'm reading the, lot of the lotto numbers and my stomach sinks because I know that I've got at least... Three of the numbers that have been called Okay, and I don't know But my my heart sinks So as I finish reading the numbers I'm like, all right, everybody And now back to the music Here's Don McLean with American Pie Because American Pie is a really long song And I figured that if I had just become An instant millionaire I was going to need to spend a little bit of time In the bathroom Kind of, you know, dropping a load And getting myself together Because that would be (laughs) a a huge deal (laughs) Turns out that I had four of the six numbers, and that pays out about 40 bucks, at least it did on that night, which was pretty nice. I mean, gas was only about $10 to fill up my tank at that point, and, and the town that I lived in had an all-you-can-eat McDonald's, so I was totally set up with 40 bucks. Yeah, <laughs> McDonald's had, had this, uh, at, at specific times, they had all-you-can-eat. It was the, in heaven, there's a McDonald's with an all-you-can-eat, just saying, <laughs> Okay, obviously it wasn't as sweet as taking down the jackpot, not the store, but the the jackpot, the, the actual lottery, but 40 bucks was good. All that to say, for a small town guy that had little more than a home that was warm, safe, and dry, the fantasy of riches was tantalizing. Even then, there was this sense of winning the lottery. Having millions would mean that I would never have to worry about anything, I would enjoy everything, and I would have to depend on no one. That all seemed very appealing. And so tonight as we continue a series that we're calling Strong Opinions, Stronger Faith, where we are looking at issues where followers of Jesus tend to have different opinions on, while anyone who is a follower of Christ, a Christian, uh, is going to make particular statements of belief. We call them confessions, where we say that that we believe that, that God was involved in the creation of the earth, that Jesus Christ was God's one and only Son and Lord of the world, and that the Holy Spirit is alive and even active among us today. Those are our non-disputables. Any Christian is going to believe those. But on so many other issues, there is a spectrum of beliefs within the faith that all have a biblical basis and would be considered acceptable convictions. Our goal in this series is to encourage you to wrestle, to wrestle with God and the Bible that in the words of Romans 14 that Janie got us started with a couple of weeks ago, Uh, that we might be convinced in our own minds. In all of this, there is a central ethic that emerges, that guides everything, and that ethic is love. That in your wrestling, you would wrestle with this idea of, with these issues, what is going to help me love God as well as my neighbor and myself a little bit more? So tonight, we're going to talk about money, 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 money. So before we do that, let's pray. Lord, be at work in us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we seek to know you and your kingdom among us that much more. Open our hearts and minds, our eyes and our ears, as we open your word on this night. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so what is the dispute here? How is this a disputable matter? Well, there are Christians who see money as bad, if not evil, and avoid it for just the possibility of potentially putting their souls in jeopardy. Others suggest that material blessing or wealth is actually an evidence of God's favor and God's blessing on individuals and communities. Well, my conviction is that be it in riches or in poverty, we are called to stewardship. Now, stewardship is simply the act of using one's God-given resources, including and perhaps mainly money, for benefits beyond themselves. Now, know, note that part of my conviction is there, that there's really no such thing as my money. It's God's money. And I'm, I'm in charge of a portion of that. I get to, to be kind of a, a region. I get to be a, a benefactor in, in doling that out. So tonight, as we talk about money, what you need to know is that we're talking about something that the Bible talks a whole bunch about. For those of you that were here last week, we, when we talked about alcohol, perhaps you recall that there really isn't a whole bunch that the Bible says about it. Um, there's, there's a few key places where it's mentioned, uh, but it doesn't say a whole bunch. Money is a whole bunch different. For those of you who are statistician types, there are 147 places in the Bible where money is mentioned very specifically. That number does not include the number of times in Scripture where, say, the poor or the marginalized, anything economic-related is, is mentioned. If that's the case, we get into several hundred if not up over a 1,000. Author Jim Wallace recalls a moment in seminary where he was given an assignment to cut out any passage of the Bible that mentioned money or the poor. He says, quote, and when when we were done, that Bible was literally in shreds. It was falling apart in my hands. It was a Bible full of holes. I would take it out to preach and say, brothers and sisters, this is our American Bible. My point here is that when we talk about money, we are talking about something that is very prominent in scripture and an issue that I struggle with every single day. Now, it's probably good for us that live in a capitalistic and materialistic culture to have so much conversation in scripture around something that is so real for us. Now, we can't cover it all tonight. So I want to hone in on a couple of passages from the Sermon on the Mount that capture the tension of the issue around money. Okay, so hear these words from Matthew chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 19. It says this, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Skipping down to verse 24, it says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, first off, I want you to note that there's something really practical about this passage to start off with. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. In the first century, the houses that that folks lived in would have been rather small and had mud walls, so thieves could literally dig right through the walls and take whatever they wanted. To defend against this, often a practice was that people would take their most prized possession, put it in a box, put it in a hole in the ground, and then bury it. Well, at that point, you get issues with rust and moth destroying them. So in one sense, Jesus is giving very practical advice saying, man, it's it's really not worth the effort. But no doubt that last line that we read together gives us a very clear warning. And it's passages such as this that have led believers throughout the history of the church to fear money and possessions. So as a result, they make a vow to live in poverty. Now, it's often fear that drives this decision, fear that possessions will somehow desensitize you to God and your neighbor, fear that someone might fail in their responsibility of having such great wealth, or that possessions in and of themselves may be evil. These people wonder, as we often do in mission trips, how can it be right for me to have more than I need when I look around and and see people that don't have the bare essentials? Now, as I will talk a little bit about later, caring for the poor and what the Old and New Testaments specifically call out as the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner is in no doubt a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus. But we need to be aware of idealizing poverty. I have been guilty of this. It's the story that we share when we come back from a mission trip or a trip abroad, where in essence we find ourselves inspired by somebody sticking to their faith in conditions that that leave us saying, oh, they they had nothing, but they had everything. These moments happen quite a bit in our lives where we might see what somebody else is going through and we say, oh, I, I, I couldn't do it. I could not have done what they are doing. And in moments like the ones I've described, it's easy to look at ourselves and believe that we are not as faithful because the conditions of our lives are so much different from a material perspective. In those moments, it's easy to kind of demonize wealth and the possessions that we have. We make broad declarations then uh, that their faith is somehow better or more authentic than our own. And we say the only way for us to really experience, experience the presence of the spirit is in poverty. And it becomes a mandate to sell it all and to protect ourselves from the evils of materialism the best we can. The prevailing sentiment here is that if I take money and possessions out of the equation as much as I can, then there's no way for me to make a mistake of serving money, per the the warning of that last line that we read. Well, we need to keep reading. Um, In Matthew 6, starting at 25, again, this is Jesus saying, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. This last line, just a few verses from the warning that you can't serve God and money is used by some Christians to say that those who follow God and do what Jesus says are to be rich. They make a big deal about all these things being added unto you. This is where we talk about things like prosperity and health and wealth gospel. And the idea is that if I'm just a little more faithful, if I can just do a little bit better, then God will bless me and I will be healthy and happy. Once I heard a pastor riffing on this passage, and he began by talking about how much God had blessed him. And he noted, rappers lease Bentleys. A Bentley is a high-end luxury car. He says, rappers lease Bentleys. I own three. For this pastor, he was seeking to inspire his congregation to obedience and faithfulness. He was doing his best to say, Jesus can change lives and he can take you out of the bad situation that you're in. The Bible says all this stuff will be added to you if you just trust God more. Now, if we tease out a theology such as this, which says that only the faithful are materially blessed... It means that not only do that 1% that we heard so much about in the last election cycle, not only does it mean that they have, you know, whatever it is, 90% of all the wealth, a theology like that says that they get 90% of all the blessings, too. Now, in my opinion, there's a lot of problems with a belief such as this. The biggest one is this, is that it puts the responsibility entirely on us to get it right, and to earn the blessing of God. It puts the onus on us to be good enough to capture the love of Jesus. Now, in the passage that I just read, the much clearer invitation is an invitation of grace. Did you catch that? It is an invitation to not worry if all these things, the things that you need, will be given to you. It is an invitation to, to not worry, I think, as well, if God loves you. Implicit in the promise there is that you are already blessed, that Jesus loves you. The passage makes a bigger deal about us then, because of a loving God, seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. That's the focus. Seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, not the things that will be added unto you. So why do I bring this up to a group of college students? Often when we talk about money with a group of 18 to 23-year-olds, it is dismissed as something for later, something that I will worry about after I'm done with all of this school stuff. But money is something that drives a lot of our decisions right now, right? Okay, feel free to to kind of fill in the blank as I lead you to it. You are in school that you, at some point, will finish and get a good job, right? You want to get a good job so that you can make lots of money. You want to make lots of money so that you can buy lots of cool yeah, stuff, iPhones, okay? You want to buy a lot of iPhones and stuff so that your friends will think that you're really cool, awesome. OK? Now, I make a little bit light of this, but I do it to show that we have expectations around money. We have expectations that what we were doing now, what we're doing now, will lead to some sort of monetary payoff. Money seems to drive a lot of the decisions we make and, and really just guide why we do some of the things that we do. Not to mention, most of you. Do you have money right now, and actually, you have more than you think? Okay, not only students, but take our interns, for example. Sometimes, sometimes it rains in the U trailer. Take a look at this. Barkley was so excited for the, the opportunity to make it rain on Andrews. So it's like, yeah, you guys can make a video for tonight. <laughs> Honestly, it's a visual for saying there's more money around us than, than we think. Our good friends at Nationwide Insurance published a study on the spending habits of college students. There were several interesting elements to this study. First, it says that the average student spends about $1,200 a month based on on wages from part-time jobs and money given to them from their parents. Of those funds, 26% goes to room and board, 20% goes to uh, tuition and other school-related expenses, but that more than 50% goes towards stuff. They listed as technology, entertainment, clothes, and of course, as we heard about last week, booze. Last week, we learned that most undergraduates will finish their degree with over $20,000 of student debt. Now add to that the 84% of students that have at least one credit card, and of that, 21% carry a credit card debt, a balance between $3,000 and $7,000. As a demographic, this was probably the thing that was most interesting to me. As a demographic, you are estimated to have 417 billion, with a B, billion dollars in spending power. Now, that's a lot of power. That's power that you have right now. That's why we need to talk about money. That's why we need to consider what are the habits that we are building around this right now. So if that's the question, what will you do with that power? What will you do with the influence that you have? Where will you invest? Again, my conviction is that stewardship is a key aspect of our practice, dare I say, our spirituality as Christians. And so we need to be thoughtful about how we spend money and use resources to benefit others. Now, the gospel is simply this. Okay, if you're looking for the gospel in a nutshell, here it comes, that Jesus has come to set each of us and the world right. We are people in need of rescue, and Jesus has delivered on that. Jesus then, through the work of the Spirit, invites us to participate. That is, invest in his rescue mission. Jesus invites us to invest in his kingdom and not our own. So to close up tonight, I want to give you three practical considerations stated both positively and negatively, though I'm going to start with the negative. The first one is simply this. Okay? Don't worship money. One of the clearest warnings in the whole of scripture is against idolatry. In, this pas- in the passage that we read first, it clearly states you can't serve both God and money. When we talk about not worshiping money, in essence, we are saying don't make money an idol. Now, there's essentially two ways that you can make something an idol. First is that you expect a miracle out of it, that you expect if I have a bunch of money, as I noted in my fantasies about winning the lottery, then everything would be Okay that I wouldn't have to worry about anything, I'd enjoy everything, and I would depend on nobody. I'm expecting a miracle out of money. Well, what, doesn't cha- what money can't do is, is save my grandmother that was dying from cancer. Money can't rescue uh, the marriages in my family that ultimately ended in divorce, though there's part of me that wishes it could, but it can't. You see, we make money in idol by demanding miracles from it. That's the problem, in my opinion, with prosperity gospel. We can also make something in idol by fearing it. When, we, when fear drives us to avoid wealth and possessions for fear that it might impact our own relationship with God, we are still being Selfish. Often when there is an intense fear of something, it ends up having just as much influence on us as it does when we demand a miracle from something. My observation in our culture is that we are scared to death of pain. As a result, we spend so much time and money trying to avoid pain that there are many that are not actually living in the process. In the case where we're talking about with, with money, it would be easy to spend as much time trying to avoid materialism in um, money so much that it actually enslaves you. You become so obsessed with not being enslaved that you become enslaved. Perhaps there's a little bit of wisdom here from uh, our good friend Jesse J. that it's not about the money, money, money. If negatively negatively we say, don't worship money, we're saying, don't make it an idol. Positively, we say, serve and worship God even with your money. When we do this, it means we invest our lives in a relationship with a God that, as we've read here, promises to care for us. But God's care for us is far more than material. God's love for us and for you is far more creative than a dollar bill. So money becomes part of the way that we worship God, and that's a good thing. Second, don't become a slave to money. How do we become a slave to money? By going into what I might call toxic debt. Now, student debt is a good thing. Uh, you are borrowing uh, with hopes that you are gaining an education that is going to be edifying both to you and to the building up of those around you, dare I say, the building up of the kingdom. I know I had to go into debt to finish my undergrad degree, and I'm not ashamed to say that I did so. In many cases in, in this country, going into debt to buy a house is also I think, a pretty good, at least responsible thing. When you have a house that locates you in a neighborhood, uh, in a place where you can get to know people around you, love and serve them, and, and be a, become a place where you can share and fellowship with others. There is such thing as good debt, but we need to avoid putting ourselves in a position where we become a slave to debt. What am I talking about? Yesterday was a significant day in this country, not only because of the tragedy uh, in Boston uh, at the finish line of the marathon, but as some of you may be aware, it was also kind of a national tax day. Uh, when I was a student, I'll be honest to say that that didn't matter to me a whole bunch. My parents was, were still eager to claim me on their income tax returns, and now I understand why. Shortly after Julie and I uh, were married, uh, it was actually... In really, the first three years, we didn't earn any money. Uh, in fact, when we would do our tax returns, it was actually a good day because it usually meant uh, those first three years, it always meant that we were, we were going to get a little bit of money back. Well, in that third year, uh, we did a little bit better, and we had not planned, uh, planned on that. And there ended up being a rather substantial um, five-digit tax liability that we just, out of ignorance... We didn't realize that we, we were missing it. Um, and so we had to go into debt to take care of that. And honestly, over the, the better part of the next three or four years, we did everything that we could to service that debt, to somehow uh, take care of it so that we, we could be free of it. But what it meant was that we weren't nearly as nimble in being able to make Various career choices. We were going to make a career move. It meant that we were going to have to make sure that we were making and earning enough money. We weren't able to. Uh, on, honestly, it cut into the things that we were able to participate in with our giving. There were times where, where even tithing or giving to a charity felt irresponsible because shouldn't we be serving, servicing this this debt that we have? Okay. Though it was out of ignorance that we found ourselves in that position, there was was a toxicity to it. We were no longer able to simply respond to the things that, that God was putting on our heart and do so with the obligations that we had to this debt. So instead of being a slave to money, again, we are to steward it. Now, a key aspect of this stewardship, this word that I keep coming back to, is thoughtfulness. It means getting a handle on the impulse purchases. One of the things that my wife and I have instilled in our family is that before we buy something for ourselves, particularly clothing, we have to slow down and stop ourselves and say, if we buy this sweater... If I buy this sweater, which sweater am I taking out? It becomes kind of a one-for-one a one transaction because I'm, I can stand up in front of you and say, though you, you were like, dude, church, you wear those pants every you know every other time you preach at the end. Look, I have I have more than enough. I know that I have more than enough in my closet. So there's this great little policy that we have that says, you know. If one comes in, one comes out. And honestly, there are moments that I have to slow down and go, okay, if I'm going to get that shirt, that means I'm going to have to give up my purple plaid shirt. No way. I love that shirt. That's my preaching shirt, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to give that shirt up. And so I don't get something, okay? And that's a good thing. It's, it slows us down. Now, what I am not saying here is, okay, hey, you know, if you want to trade out your wardrobe every season to bring in a new one, okay, that's kind of missing the point. Okay? It is being thoughtful about what you uh, are going to spend your money on and how you are going uh, to spend it. George McDonald said, to, to have what we want is riches. To be able to do without it is power. Slowing down to to notice what we need, not necessarily what we want, and certainly not going into debt to do it. The invitation in serving God and not money is to not worry. And of course, that was the bulk of the final passage passage that we read. Instead of worrying about debt, the invitation Jesus gives you is, how about to not worry? Finally, finally, don't ignore the needs of the world and those around you. There's probably a more creative way to say it, but it's, that's probably the most straightforward way. I'm not just talking about meeting our needs. I'm talking about looking to see how we might use what God has empowered and entrusted to us with how we might serve the needs of the world as well. For the overwhelming majority of us in this culture, we don't just bring gifts and talents to the table, we bring money. Money can be used for the building up of the body of Christ in some awesome ways. Uh, one of the coolest things that has happened over the past couple of years uh, is that I started sponsoring this, this uh, kid through the I Love Baseball program named Jonathan Batista, and in on our trip down to the Dominican every year, I get to kind of hang out with this guy and, and hear about what's going on in his life and, and see the difference that the funds that I and others are contributing, to see the difference that is it's making in his life. He's getting opportunities that he wouldn't otherwise have. And of course, every time I see him, there's everything in me says, wow, this, this is awesome that I get to participate in this guy's life, even from afar, by giving what I do have, what God has entrusted to me, and putting it into play for the benefit of somebody else. It's been catalytic, these funds, in starting a unique relationship that I and this young man have. And all this happened because I was part of a community, a group of guys in and and, and the community here at UMIN, that we were not going to be ignorant to the needs of the world around us. And what I had to give in that moment, primarily, was money. I'm also well aware that the job that I'm in here, my paycheck is predicated upon the generosity of others. The Taco Tuesday that we uh, that we enjoy every week is made possible because there is a group of people here at this church that joyfully give money to say, we want to welcome the, the the stranger and the orphan among us. That's you guys, okay? To say, we want them to feel like on Tuesday nights, this is their kitchen and their living room. We want them to make this their home when they f- may feel a stranger in a strange land. You see, having wealth or possessions is not necessarily a bad thing. Remember, that first passage we read says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, but store up for yourself. It is given a positive. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, Thus, it's not about having wealth or possessions. It doesn't have to be a bad thing or evil. It's about what you do with it. What do you invest in? And the act of investing is this question of stewardship. Using everything we have, be it great or small, for the kingdom of God. This means practicing stewardship today in real time with whatever it is that you have. Listen, the habits that you are forming right now, when you may be tempted to say, but I don't have a lot of money, even if it's just a little bit of money, the decisions that you make about it right now are the decisions that you are gonna make when you graduate as well. My hope is that as we wrestle with money. And when we remember that God has entrusted to us so much gifts, talents, resources, possessions, and money, that we would be looking for ways that we might put that into play that don't just benefit us. Scripture's clear that we are called to care for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner among us. Let us wrestle, even now, about how we might do that. And we can do that because of what we're reminded at at this table. And what we're reminded of is that Jesus, that God in Jesus Christ has fully invested in us. God has given everything that God can give and that is himself, his very life. He has given us his body and his blood and poured out his spirit among us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and as we are reminded as we come to this table, invites us to participate in his life and his kingdom.